0: Before we start the, the sermon, uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 14. So if you want to turn your Bible to that passage while I am talking, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, but I wanted to remind you as well. Uh, and some of you have grabbed some of these memory verses. That's awesome. Uh, there's several more on that table. Uh, if you have like a family member or a friend that you want to share these with, you're more than welcome to grab one and share that with them. You don't have to just. It doesn't have to be just for you. You can share these. We want everyone, even people who don't go to church here, to memorize God's word, uh, and that could be encouraging to them. And to realize that probably in, in the next week or so, we'll be adding five more cards to your ring, and so we'll have those available for you either on Thursday during the growth group uh, or on Sunday, um, depending on when we get those done. So I going to encourage you with that. And uh, I know most of you um, probably know about uh, our summer growth groups. If you are have forgotten some of those details. Uh, obviously, you can go online. Obviously, you can go to the app, and the information will be on there. But also, when you leave the door here, there's a kind of a nice little sheet of paper, um, and uh, it has the information back. So, welcome to grab one of those. Okay. So, we are, again, we are in Revelation 14. I'm going to read this whole chapter. We haven't been doing that the last few weeks because of, it's just the passages have been so long. And so, I'm going to read this whole chapter. It's like 20 verses. Um, if you would just kind of follow along with me. I believe the, I don't the words are on the screen, so um, you're going to have to follow along in your own Bibles or your own, your own phones, which I know most of you have. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 14. This is again Apostle John who is, who is writing this. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the, the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great." And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labor." Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 strata. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come this morning, Lord, after reading your word. For this is a difficult passage. It's encouraging, but also devastating as well. Lord, help us to understand it well. Help us to be faithful to your word. Lord, use it, Lord, to strengthen us in the faith. As it says here in verse 12, the call of perseverance, the call of endurance for the saints. Lord, may you use this passage to strengthen us and to call us, Lord, to perseverance and endurance to the end. Lord, we pray for those who are with us. Lord, we pray for your people in the midst, Lord, of this pandemic that's going on. Some of us are frustrated. Some of us are struggling in different ways. Lord, help us, strengthen us, strengthen our faith, strengthen our love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, you're—this is a total side point. This has nothing to do with what I just read. But uh, I want to just encourage you, and maybe I'll share this on the Facebook group. Um, But there's an article on Gospel Coalition about um, kind of what God's doing in the nation of Japan. And there's a church called Grace City Church that basically was a church plant out of um, Redeemer Presbyterian Church up in New York City. And it is amazing what God's doing there. Uh, And I knew nothing about this until I read this article. It was so encouraging. Especially since we're a church plant, right? When you read about other church plants in other countries, it's so encouraging. And so I wanted to just encourage you to read that if you have time today or this week. I'll... Put that on the Facebook group, or uh, if you want to search for it yourself, you'll find it on the Gospel Coalition website, and I want to just encourage you with that, and, and if you think about, after reading that, pray for that church and what God's doing in the nation of Japan. If you're curious about why Japan and why that's so interesting, come talk to me after service, and I'll talk to you about kind of the history of Japan and why this is so significant, so I wanted just to kind of put that out there before we start. Uh, the sermon title for today This comes from the the famous Robert Frost poem. But two roads diverge in a wood. Two roads diverged in a wood. Of course, Robert Frost's poem um, called The Road Not Taken, the last stanza, is two roads diverge in a wood. And I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. And the reason why I've titled it is, is that really when you read this chapter... It's very similar to Psalms chapter 1. You get these kind of two paths, right? These two paths by which people take. And there is a consequence. And those paths lead to a particular destination. One to eternal life. One to eternal rest. And the other to eternal judgment. And um, so kind of the, the, the big idea of this sermon is that two paths... set before every human being. Every human being. Two paths are set before them. One leads to eternal life, and the other leads to eternal judgment. I would say that this chapter is probably the most straightforward chapter in the book of Revelation. It doesn't make any less challenging to understand it and teach it, because I think what's challenging about chapter 14 is that some of the language in here is really difficult for us to stomach. It's not difficult to understand, it's difficult to stomach. Because what we get is is that some who do not believe those who do not believe in Christ, who are not redeemed by Christ, the destination of their journey is eternal judgment. And I think as Americans, we struggle with that. We struggle with this idea that there's only two there's only one path to God. Right? We want a bunch of options. We want different ways to things. But the Bible is pretty straightforward. And it's actually quite consistent from the beginning of the book of the Bible that there is one option. There is one path to God. It was pretty much simple, even in Genesis chapter 2, right? God told Adam what? He told him not to eat of the tree of the garden of the tree of, of, of good and evil. Right? And the knowledge of good and evil. He told him not to eat of the fruit. This is one way by which you can be faithful to me is by following what I commanded you, following what I decreed to you. It's one law. And if you follow this one law, you will enjoy God and his garden forever. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Satan presents an alternative path, an alternative option. That path with the path of defiance. Against God, the creator. This path led to judgment, right? This path of judgment is presented now in Genesis 3. And what happens to Adam and Eve? They're kicked out of the garden. They're judged because they did not, they weren't faithful to God. They were not faithful to God, the creator. And this path now, there's a path that leads to judgment. There's a path that leads to eternal life and and, and, and life everlasting with God, and that's those who are faithful to God. And we'll learn, through even through this passage, that those who have trusted and been redeemed by the Lamb are those who will lead to eternal life. But those who are not redeemed by the Lamb, those who love Babylon, those who love the world, those who hate God, the consequence and the end of the road, the end of their path, is eternal judgment. Really what we get in chapter 14 is really this kind of zoomed out, very zoomed out uh, kind of portrayal or presentation of the spiritual reality of every human being. We'll get more details in chapter 19 and chapter 20, but right now we're getting this big picture, this meta understanding, this meta-narrative of what happens to people, what's happened to all people from the beginning. Those who are faithful to God and those who reject God. And the path is either to eternal life or to eternal judgment. John has revealed this cosmic reality of these two paths. And really this has been very, like I said, been consistent since the beginning of the Bible. We see in Genesis chapter 3, you get the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Those who are with the woman, those who are with God, you see this through the book of uh, all throughout the Bible, right? You see Israel is, is with God. They're God's chosen people. But yet Egypt is, uh, are people that are, who are of the opposition to God, or the opposition to God's people. And they're the seed of the serpents. So you, you have this this kind of me, uh, motif or theme throughout the entire Bible of these two paths. We get introduced again to them in chapter 14. And almost so interesting in language that is used here in chapter 14 those who have the mark of their forehead of the, of the Father are those who are redeemed. The mark who have the mark of the beast, it leads to judgment. Very similar language with the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, mark of the Father, mark of God, and the mark of the beast. Very similar language. Where do these two paths lead? To one, that's standing with the Lamb and His glory, to the blamelessness and eternal rest. The other to eternal judgment and no rest. And like I said, we struggle with this this understanding as Americans because, again, we live in a society and a culture that has so many options. I remember every time I go to Starbucks, I look up at the menu, and I'm like, I don't even know what to order. I don't know what to get. They have new flavors and new drinks. It seems like every day they have new flavors and new flavor lattes that you can get. And different ways that you can get it. You can get it uh, with this type of milk or that type of flavored foam thing. And there's so many options. You know, Netflix, it's hard to find a movie on Netflix because there's so many options. There's so many, I was looking for a mask, you know, because now I have to wear a mask wherever you go now. So I needed one that's a little more comfortable. You go online and there's so many different types of masks, so many different companies that are making masks, so many different designs of masks, right? We've gone beyond just the surgical blue mask now. We live in a a culture that has so many options. And when the Bible says there's one option to God, and that's through Christ, we don't really understand that concept. How can there not be more options? How can there not be more ways? But yet there isn't. It's only through Christ. So kind of the, the main point is that eternal rest is experienced by those who have been redeemed by the Lamb. Eternal rest is experienced by those who have been redeemed by the Lamb. And and I want you to emphasize, if you're taking notes, you can kind of underline eternal rest, because that is a major theme, right? What's happening to those who put their comfort in Babylon or comfort in the world, what does it lead to? It leads to eternal judgment. So in a sense, they took their rest and their comfort from the world, and it led to eternal judgment. Those who trust in the Lamb, those who trust in Christ, even if they're suffering because of their faith, even if they go through persecution because of their faith, it leads to what? Eternal rest. So there's kind of a play on words throughout this chapter. Kind of the 1st subpoint in point A is, a love affair with the Lamb leads to life. A love affair with the Lamb Leads to life. This is verses 1 through 5. That first paragraph of this chapter. And we see that John, he looks, right? Anytime you see John say that, you know that a new vision is being presented. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Mount Zion is a very significant language for the Jews, Right? A lot of the Old Testament, you'll see the Zion is represented as Israel. And it talks about Zion being redeemed by God, right? That God will bring them back to the land, would restore them to their prosperity that they once knew. Zion was a very, very, very powerful word for Israel. And we get this imagery that the Lamb, or Jesus Christ is standing on Mount Zion, and, and what that's representing here is Jesus' authority and his victory. That Jesus has been victorious over evil. He's been victorious over, over Satan and the demonic forces. He has won. And what is it? Who's standing with the Lamb? Who's with him? It says 100, 144,000, which we kind of interpreted here, is that these are all believers from all time. All believers are standing with the Lamb the one who has victory the one who has authority we're standing with him and it says that of those 144 thousand of all believers of the church that includes you if you're a believer here if you've trusted in Christ you it just includes you that in, in the future at the end of time you'll be standing with the Lamb of Christ the Lamb of God Christ Jesus himself you'll be standing with him on Mount Zion Standing with him in his victory, standing with him in his authority and his power and his rule. And it says that of, the, of all believers, that they are marked on their foreheads with the name of his father. What does that mean? Does that mean you will actually have like a, blue, like a, like a stamp on your head? I'm, I'm not sure. But what it represents is that you belong to God the Father. You belong to him. That you are his possession. That is such a comforting thing to know that you belong to God, right? You belong to Him. Even as we talked about, as as David was was reading in our confession, right? Confess our sins to our Father. Even when we sin against God, right? We are sinning against God. When we sin, we sin against God, ultimately. David says that in Psalms 51. Only you have I sinned against. Even when we sin against God, we still belong to Him. If you're in Christ. What an encouraging truth to to blanket yourself with, that we belong to God. And it says that, and and I love this passage, especially after we just sang some of the psalms we sang. It says that John heard this loud thunder, this loud voice. And it was the voice of the Christians, of the saints, singing a new song to the Lord. And it was so loud. It was like thunder. Which is not, I mean, we, we kind of get this idea, even in Revelation 5.12, When they if you want to switch over to there real quick. It says, with a loud voice, the thousands upon thousands, the myriads, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, right? They, with a loud voice, we sing a new song. Seeing a song before the throne, and then I love how it says that only those, only they, knew the song. Right, that there. This is a personal song. This is a song that Christians and the saints only know. It's a song that we. It's dear to our hearts. Right. That's kind of how I think about it. A personal song, something that's dear to your heart, something that you know every word. That when you sing it, it makes you cry, it makes you weep, because it's so powerful. You know, when we sang that song earlier, O Come, O Come, You Sinners, right? When we sing that song, it does kind of like, we we realize that, we sing that song, we can say, Come, O Sinners, and realize that Christ Jesus has bared the wrath due to us. We sing that song because we know that God, Christ Jesus, has bared our wrath. And when we sing that song, when we believe in its words, it's powerful, it's strong. And so we sing this song, we belong to God, we stand with the Lamb. And it says that here in verse verse 3, at the end of verse 3, no one can learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. What does it mean that we've been redeemed from sin? We've been redeemed from death. We've been redeemed from the wickedness of the world. We've been redeemed from our own hearts. We've been redeemed out of the earth, from the earth. And it says that in those who had not have not defiled themselves with women. And there was re- I know some of you have watched maybe hopefully you have all or most of you watched the Hamilton uh, uh, kind of a musical on Disney Plus. Uh, if you haven't, you should watch it. Um, but I, I've been reading the book that it's based off, which is 700 pages long. I don't know why anyone who ever lived should have 700 pages about their life. I'm Just a lot of pages to read. So I've been reading through this book, and, and it was talking about Alexander Hamilton. He went to King's College, right? I think it's in one of the songs that he wants to go to King's College. King's College, if you don't know this, now became Columbia University. So one of the Ivy League schools, Columbia University, which is in New York City, was once King's College. And King's College was in in an area of New York in the 1700s that was in the red light district. If you don't know what the red light district is, it's where certain women uh, kind of do their thing with other men. Um, And at that time, which is interesting, I was reading this, we kind of think that Kind of sexuality and sexual immorality is only like current thing it's bad in in, in our world, but it was ever bad back then. In England, and I mean in New York at that time, five hundred there were five hundred prostitutes working in New York in the 1760s. And their district where they did their work was right outside of King's College. Like to get to the college, you had to right walk down the street. This was happening. And so the president, President Cooper of King's College at this time, had these massive walls built to separate the students from the red light district. And they would actually put a guard or a porter at the gate to make sure none of the women came in and none of the students went into that area. And they had, the students had to be back to the college at 10 o'clock every night, or they'd be told to the president who was kind of lingering on that street too long. And it was common for students to kind of linger on those streets and pay for, you know, you know, you know what they paid for. And, and so the, the, the president tried to keep their students not to be defiled from what was going on outside the campus. When I was reading this, it made me think about the walls that, um, that, that are built, that separate even us from the defilement of the world. And the Holy Spirit who protects us from the sins of the world. And so the, the saints, the church, those who have trusted in the Lamb, they don't defile themselves. But I love this, what it says here. This is one of my favorite phrases and passages of this entire uh, book, of uh, this whole yeah. chapter. It says, it is those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I love that. I love how it says that. Wherever He goes, they follow It maybe think, you know, as Christians, we think, oh, we just trust in Christ, we believe in Jesus, and that's all that we have to do. That's all that's required of us. But we're required to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We're required to follow Christ wherever He goes. What did Jesus say to the disciples before He ascended into heaven? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. I think as churches, as Church Redeemer Fellowship, when we even do discipleship one-on-one— We should be encouraging people to do what? To follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Not just simply go to church. Not just simply, you know, you're a Christian, you're good, and you listen to Caleb on your radio, that's great. But we want people to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And you're not going to know where the Lamb goes if you don't know the Word of God. And so we need to encourage people in that. If you have a one-on-one discipleship relationship, if you're meeting with other people, if you you know, regularly talk with people, Even if if you're talking to your husband or your wife. Your kids. That's what we need to be talking to them about. To follow the lamb wherever he goes. To be in love with the lamb. It says here that we are the first fruits of God in the lamb. That we are a treasure of God's kingdom. and In their body was no deceit. And we were blameless before God. Blameless before God. You see where this path goes? This path. If you trust in Christ, if you're redeemed by the Lamb, where does it lead to? Blamelessness. Who doesn't want to be blameless before God? I know if, you can all probably kind of do this your own testimony. You realize if, God, if, if, God, if my sins were presented before you all, I would be ashamed. right? And you all could probably echo that as well. If my sins were put on a massive screen in front of you, I'd be ashamed. I I would want to hide in the ground itself. But this is saying that that screen has been wiped away, and before God you are blameless. Not because you are great, but because the Lamb is so great. Because Christ Jesus is so great that we are blameless before God. That's where that path leads. The second path, which is point number two, a love affair with Babylon leads to judgment. So we see like another angel flying directly overhead. And it says he had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation and tribe and language and people. And He said with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So this angel comes, and we've already had this scene of the Lamb on Mount Zion, surrounded by his, his sheep, surrounded by his church, surrounded by his people. And they're singing a loud song to him, they're marked by the Father. This other angel has an eternal gospel, the eternal good news for everyone. It's the only way to God. The only way to stand with the Lamb. The only way to be able to sing the new song. The only way to be able to be marked by God. The only way to be blameless before God. The only way to be a first fruit of God. The only way to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You have to trust in the eternal gospel. It's the only way to rest. It's the only way to God. It says, fear God and give Him glory. Why? Because God is the Creator and deserves all worship. It's the only way. And this gospel is for everyone. It's for all tribes, it's for all nations, it's for all languages. The gospel isn't for white people. The gospel isn't for western people. The gospel is for all people. You realize this that if you were to if you were to find a majority of Christians do not live in the United States. The majority of Christians do not live in the west. The majority of Christians live in the global south or in Asia. The gospel is for all nations. And anytime you're having a conversation with a Muslim or someone who's Hindu or someone who's Buddhist, and they go, oh yeah, Christianity is for Westerners, we immediately take that thought out of their mind, because that's just not the truth. Christianity is not for Western people. It's not for white people. It's for all people. And so he he, this angel preaches this, 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 eternal gospel. But then another angel, in verse nine, verse eight. I'm sorry, another angel, second followed, saying, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality." So you have this eternal gospel, this eternal good news for all nations. And fear God, worship Him. The other path is, is the path of being enticed by Babylon. Babylon represents the world, the system of the world. And in, in, in the language here is in a sense of passion with her, laid with her, slept with her, drank of her, her pleasure. But what does it say about her? What does it say about Babylon? What does it say about the world system? That it's already fallen. It's interesting how it's written here. It's in past tense. Even though the world hasn't fallen, the angel says it's fallen. So those who are striving striving for the world and striving for its system and falling in love with the world, they're falling in love with with an entity that's already dead, that's already fallen. This is a warning to turn away before it's too late. Listen to the gospel, the eternal gospel message. Identifying with the world and sin, rebelling against God, is it being described as worshiping the beast and receiving his mark? God will pour out the full strength of his wrath on them. So the first path led to what? Blamelessness. The second path leads to what? Leads out to the full strength of God's wrath being poured out on them. His justice is full and without mercy, and that mercy is before the holy angels and before the Lamb. And it says that that judgment, which is accepted by Christ, I mean Jesus is standing there in front of this judgment as God pours his wrath on those who have trusted in the world and followed the world. It says that the Lamb is standing there in approval of God's judgment on them, and that judgment is eternal. It says that there's no rest. There's no sanctuary. There's no relief. There's no end. James Joyce, the Irish writer, talks about this in a book. He says, if you want to think about eternity, think about it this way. If you've been to the beach, if you've been to Florida or any other beach, think of all the sand that is on the beach. And then one bird, one bird, had to pick up one grain of sand and take it to another pile, make a pile. How long it would take that bird to do so. It would take ages upon ages upon ages. And that would only scratch the surface of what eternity is. You can't even fathom forever. Your mind doesn't even allow you to fathom forever. Why? Because nothing in our world is forever. And this passage says that judgment upon the wicked, upon those who love the world, will be eternal. No rest. No sanctuary. No end. That blows my mind. And I think here's the problem, and I get into, I'll get into more of it a little bit later. I think the problem was, I don't think we actually believe that. I think we believe that there's no way that God would punish someone that long. There's no way. Where some people have actually believed in a, in a doctrine called annihilationism, and a lot of very prominent and very faithful people have believed in annihilationism that basically God just destroys people and they cease to exist. The problem with that belief is that goes contrary to what this passage says. There's no rest from their torment. Even the language is so devastating that we read over this and we just kind of go, yeah, 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 and we just move on. Because we don't want to think about it. But this is the path, that the end of the path for those who love the world. And you know many, many people in your life who are not Christians. You know this deep down. And they love the world. They do not love Christ. This passage, though, does lead us to some hope. in the fact that we understand, we, we sang about it earlier, is that when we think about the wrath of God, which is terrible, and this passage pretty much exposes us to the terrible and severe punishment and judgment of God on the wicked, we know that that same wrath was poured out on Christ. That Christ Jesus drank the undiluted wrath of God for you, if you trust in Christ. That's the truth. That wrath, which is so terrible and so devastating, Is the same wrath that was poured out on Jesus, and he drank every drop of it for you. Every drop of it. Every morsel of that wrath, that cup, he drank. Because our sin against a holy God is against your creator. God created you. He created me. He created us. And when we sin against God, we're sinning against his eternal majesty, his holiness. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, What then are we, Jews, any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Can't follow the world the path of following the world leads to destruction it leads to torment it leads to no wrath what the bible is saying is it's forsake the comforts of the world because if you if you accept the comforts of the world it will lead to eternal judgment instead accept and trust in god Fear God, worship God, trust Him, be faithful to Him under all circumstances, endure and persevere under all circumstances, which leads to what? Eternal rest and eternal comfort. Don't fall for her. Proverbs chapter 7, King Solomon, who's writing to his son, says about foolishness, says don't fall for her. He says, my son, keep my words, treasure my commandments with you. And he talks about the forbidden woman, the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I perceived among the youth, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near the corner, taking the road to her house, her being the world. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, and behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, willy of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. It says that she, has, she seeks, her, th- seeks him eagerly and finds him. I have spread my couch with coverings, with cl- cl- colored linens, with Egyptian linens. I have perfumed my bed. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight, our, delight ourselves with love. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And 22, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, the bird rushes into a snare. O son, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways and do not stray into her path. Why? Because it leads to the slaughtering. Do not follow her. Do not follow the world. It will lead to judgment. There's no rest. And I think for us as Christians, when we read this, we have to understand the fate of those who don't trust in Christ. We have to notice, we have to interpret the situation as being dire, an emergency. There's a... Uh, Ian could probably tell you all about this since he's a psychology major. But in 1968, they did this psychological study on bypassers and what causes people to help people in need and what causes people to ignore it. And they found out that people go through a mental step where they notice that something is going on, that someone's in need. They then interpret the situation as being an emergency – they then recognize what the degree of responsibility that they feel to this situation. Then they kind of form, uh, they kind of form as an assistance, or how am I going to go help them? And then they implement the action of choice. And I think for us, and they even say in this like, in this study that if people realize that the situation is a bit ambiguous. Like they really don't understand what's going on, they don't recognize, they don't know the people involved, and they are also, no one's going to know if they helped or didn't help, that people are more likely not to help because it's an ambiguous situation. Bystanders, Bystanders may look to one another for guidance and misinterpret others' lack of initial response as a lack of concern. I think For us, as Christians, the why we don't take this seriously is because others around us don't take this seriously. And we think this is a bit ambiguous, this judgment, and we think it leads to lack of concern. I think we struggle to recognize this as an emergency and that we need to help people to hear the eternal gospel. People need to hear so, they, so that they will believe. And then if they hear it and they trust it, they are led away from love of Babylon to now loving the Lamb. They're then marked by God as He, His. They sing a new song before the throne. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been redeemed. They become the first fruits of God in the Lamb. They become blameless. Blameless. The third point is the better path forward. The better path forward. In verse twelve, John kind of says there's a call for faithfulness for the saints to the end. And again, like, we, we don't want to lose uh, uh, lose our focus on these seven churches, these seven churches that we need to that, that being faithful to Christ in all circumstances to stand firm in the gospel. The great treasure that we sold everything to obtain was Christ. And that gospel and that treasure will not put us to shame. That it will lead to eternal life. That it will lead to rest. And what does it say here in verse 13? There's a promise of rest for those who endure, for those who persevere. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And I don't think we have to read that and interpret that as martyrs. I think that's all who have died and, and were faithful to the end. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And dream in life, putting your hope in the life everlasting, and you will rest in God. And we reject the restfulness and the comfort and the security in this life offered by the world, offered by Babylon, which is what? Temporary? And the cost is eternal judgment. The cost of gaining the world and gaining the comforts of the world and the sanctuaries of the world, the cost is eternal judgment. It's not worth the cost. It's not worth the cost. We're all... Is wanting rest. Everyone wants a place of sanctuary. There's a, a guy, I read this recently, his name is Niall Ni, Ni, Niamia, N I A M I, but he's like this, this, he built mansions in Hollywood, and he has a house that he built, and I'm not lying, it's it's cost, it's $500 million. A house. $500 million. And it's in Bel Air, and it's this massive, on this massive hill overlooking L.A. Um, and so he sold houses to like P. Diddy and Floyd Mer- Merriweather and he's built these extravagant homes. And he, will, he sells his homes by using Instagram. And he had an Instagram post with him and he was, on, he was in one of his houses that he built. And he's on one level. And on another level he has like this big house with all these like attractive women. And, and he's like in this robe. And he says there are many different levels in life. And the way that you can interpret that is that there's many different levels in life, and this is one of the highest, is living in a house like this, being in this luxurious, in, in this, this sanctuary of comfort, wealth, and status. And the world wants to promise you all these. They want to promise you comfort. They want to promise you rest. They want to promise you sanctuary. Yet the best path forward is the path of the Lamb, not of the world. We come to the end here, and I'm going to blow through this because it's really much a kind of a review and describing more of what I've already talked about. But the first, the first paragraph there, verses fourteen through sixteen, you have these two different kind of harvesting. And the way that I read this, you have a harvesting of the righteous and the harvesting of the wicked. Others will disagree with that, but uh, that's just and a few other people back me up on that. So I look at this as the first. Verses 14 and 16 is the harvesting of Christ's church and Christ's people. Uh, the lamb is being represented there. The son of man, he's wearing a golden crown on his head. And he reaps the completion of his church. The last paragraph there, God judges those who identify with Satan in the world. And I want to talk about here at the end here, this blood flowed from the winepress. This, again, this descriptive language, this very severe judgment, it says that blood flowed as high as to, a, I guess, to where the horse's stable is, but as wide as almost 200 miles. That's like saying blood flowing at waist, I mean, at higher than waist, maybe waist deep, or maybe higher, and almost from Evansville all the way to Nashville. It describes the severe language of God's judgment on the wicked. And I want to end with this quote from Tim Keller. He says, Many today find the idea of an angry God to be distasteful. Even Even though modern people agree widely that to be passionate for justice does entail rightful anger. Let me read that again. Many today find the idea of an angry God to be distasteful. Even though modern people agree widely that to be passionate for justice does entail rightful anger. Does God have the right to judge the wicked and sinner as severely as He does? And the answer is yes. He has the right. Why? Because He's God, and He created you. That's why He has the right. And our sin is against a holy, good, and perfect, and majestic, and eternal God. And the punishment of that of that sin is... Eternal judgment. And God has the right to do it. If someone chooses to rebel against God and His word, then they are choosing to rebel against their Creator. And He has the right to judge them. However, God in His mercy and wisdom also chose to offer His Son as the means of reconciliation. You realize that, right? That God does have the right to judge, but He also didn't have to save us. And he did anyways. He chose to pour his wrath for our freedom on his son. To pour his wrath for our redemption through his son. You can be counted with those who follow the lamb, who stand with the lamb, who sing a new song before the throne, and you will experience eternal rest. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 for, it, for because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more would those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Follow the Lamb who drink the wrath of God for you and me. And I think some applications, just really quickly here, is to proclaim the eternal gospel which redeems lovers of Babylon. To proclaim the eternal gospel which redeems lovers of Babylon. People who are lovers of Babylon, who are lovers of the world, the path leads to judgment, and it's eternal judgment. We need to warn people of the judgment to come. We notice it, we understand it. If you read the, the passage in the Bible, you recognize that if you believe in God's word, that that's coming, that's the end. We need to interpret the severity of the emergency. We need to recognize our response to help. And we need to assess our form of action. And I think, let me just throw this out here. This is just an idea. But think about all the people that have died from COVID in the last, what, six months? In the United States, 142,000 people have died of COVID-19. In the world, 603,000 deaths worldwide. And that number is not stopping, it's going up. Death is in the news every day. They flash those numbers every day. You can go on Google and those numbers are there. Death is everywhere. Maybe a question we can start asking people is, do you know what will happen to you when you die? That question alone leads to the warning of the judgment to come, that I think for us, reading Revelation 14, recognizing the issue, noticing it and interpreting it properly, we have to decide and recognize our responsibility to warn people of the judgment to come. But also, the last thing here is to worship Christ. But because of Christ, that wrath that is due upon you, if it weren't for the wrath that God, Christ had for us, we should worship Christ. And by worshiping him, we need to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. To be students of the word, to be followers of the word, and to be followers of Christ. That should be our path. That should be our goal. That should be our vision for our lives. Is not to be rich, not to be wealthy, not to be the best mom or dad you could possibly be, but to be the best follower of the Lamb. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Lord, we thank you for the brilliancy of the first five verses, Lord. What an encouragement to know that we stand with the Lamb, that we are marked by the Father, that we sing a new song to you. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We sing that song, Lord, to you. We are blameless before you. But Lord, we also are devastated by your eternal judgment. And Lord, let's just be honest, Lord. our, Our tendency, Lord, is to not believe it to the, to the extent by which it is written. Forgive us of that, Lord. Help us to understand the severity of your judgment, Lord, so that we will proclaim the of it and the eternal gospel to people who do not have Christ, who do not stand with the Lamb. Use us, Lord, so that those who were once lovers of Babylon, lovers of the world, will become lovers of the Lamb. Where we know people right now in our own lives that are lovers of Babylon and are not lovers of the land. And we never say a word to them. Never. We never speak Christ at all. We don't even care. We don't care. Lord, help us to care. Help us to care. And Lord, move us to action. Not because by doing it we become better Christians. We do it because we love people. And we want to warn them of the judgment to come and tell them of the gospel that Jesus Christ the lamb bear the wrath of God for them on the cross. Help us do that well in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take up